Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are. We're gathered now in our third quarantine session so we can talk about that. But the prism through which we get, might be able to examine this state is John Ashbery's poem, extended poem, Self-Portrait in a Concave Mirror. Convex. Damn, I almost f***ing that up. Is John <laughs> Ashbery's... Is it an Audi or an any? John Ashbury's self-portrait in a convex mirror. And it reminds me of, I once had a girlfriend, and she had a belly button that um, that stuck out. Oh, uh-huh. I also had a girlfriend who had a, a nipple that stuck in. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. I think many girlfriends. I think oh, I really? tend to have girlfriends with inverted nipples, at least up to a certain point in my life. Before this goes any farther, (laughs) (laughs) really no more. So, Andrew, I was hoping that maybe you could pick up the cudgel um, in that, you know, you've taught this poem a few times. Or maybe we should circle back. Does anybody have anything that they want to say arising out of our last podcast or just out of um, pure cussedness? (laughs) Well, I mean, could I offer just a little background on the poem would that be acceptable at this moment to me it would be it'd be welcome well this this poem um self-portrait in the convex mirror is the title track of of a work with the same um, name goes by the same name and it was published in 1975 by john ashbury i know it won a number of awards It, it was well received critically it won the pulitzer prize the national book award and the national book Critic Circle Award. It was the only book to have received all three awards. John Ashbery based the poem on this painting that he saw during the time he was living in in Paris, France. So he moved there to do um, a Fulbright scholarship, studying Raymond Rousseau. But he ended up staying 10 years through the 1950s into the 1960s. At one point, he traveled to Austria. He went to Vienna. And he saw this painting that um, stopped him in his tracks. It was one of those moments when we are moved or challenged by some piece of art, some emanation from a piece of art that um, is consciousness altering, I suppose. And the the work uh, dates to 1524. And it is called, as well, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror. And it was painted by um, an artist of the Renaissance, um, Francesco Parmigianino, in uh, once again in the, in the 16th century. I guess from an art historical perspective, it's uh, referred to as a mannerist, as a mannerist painting. There's some abstract quality to it. They tend to be more experimental and distort parts of the body and objects. And it's of the artist looking into a convex mirror that was um, created by um, someone he knew, a craftsman. Maybe it was a barber, someone who he knew had the technology to create this thing, and he painted his portrait. And the the the, the poem, which the, the the thing about the poem that I think is the most interesting is that you have um, all of these surfaces, right? 
So the, the, the poem is about an artist looking at a reflection of himself mm. and painting that. And then another artist, this time being a poet, coming along centuries late, later and, and seeing the, the painting in the museum, um, responding to it deeply and then composing his own self-portrait in response to the self-portrait. And then finally you have the reader looking into the surface of the text, seeing himself or herself in um, myriad ways potentially in the act of readership. So you have all of, if you trace these surfaces, you, you, you enter into this um, intimate connection to an artist who left a trace many, many centuries ago. Um, there's something transcendental, there's something spiritual about that sort of connection through art. There's a profound, Helen Vendler refers to it as a lyrical intimacy. Hmm. That's present, that um, works across time. I remember Lisa Jarnot, whom I went to school with back in the day. She said, oh yeah, John Ashbery wrote this book, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, and this poem and the other poems in that book, in order to win the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. <laughs> Yeah, he like intentionally kind of um, dumbed it dumbed his dumbed himself down a little bit in order to write a poetically popular book that would garner a bunch of rewards so that he'd have some base, so he'd have some cushion. Yeah, me. Mm. This is what was transmitted to me. Um, and, you know, Lisa was part of the Buffalo scene, and so she probably picked it up from one of those sources. He, um, uh. he, did, he did mention to me that it was the um, poem that he worked on the most. As he, as he aged, he, he, he really was increasingly more of the first thought, best thought. Maybe he would give it um, a little editing attention, but minimal. But on that poem... Self-portrait in the convex mirror. He said he spent an entire summer really working out each line. Hmm. Yeah, so, it's not like uh, you know the way I think of Ashbery's poems, which I always think of his poems as being uh, kind of uh, non sequiturs, you know. And I always thought they were very funny when he read them out loud. It'd be like a sentence would start in one place, and then it seemed like he would somehow collage it into another place, like. Wherever I go, I am always going nervous, but uh, astronomical, you know, something like that. It wouldn't make a syntactical sense, whereas this poem all makes pure syntactical sense. It's like a linear, like Sam is saying, kind of a rational poem. You can follow it and um, it, uh, you know, it's, it makes a compelling argument. There is, an, yeah, an argument or a narrative continuity. Sure. Mm. I think you're right. Now, Sparrow, you don't care for the poem aesthetically. Is that is that what you had said earlier? I said I don't like the poem. I don't particularly, yeah, I don't really like the poem. I read it years ago and don't remember what I thought of it. I was an idiot and young, studying with Ted Berrigan at City College in 1983, I think, when I, you know, he forced us to read it. And I read it and I guess I thought it was brilliant because I was told it was brilliant. And now it just strikes me as kind of didactic and 
the thing I don't like about poetry is full of <laughs> lots of obvious ideas. And uh, I just find it stupid, even like Keats. You know, like, what's the point of Ode on a Grecian Urn? Oh, that there are, you look at a Grecian urn, there's these figures on it, and there's like one guy, he's chasing this woman. Guess what? He's never going to catch her. All right. through eternity. Uh, can't catch her because he's on a Grecian urn. He can't <laughs> move. He's stuck there. Well, That's sure. not very, you know, insightful. I mean, yeah, that yeah. four-year-old could figure that out, you know? It's a little bit like uh, Zeno's arrow or something. Um, Something like yeah, that. It's but, a, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. Zeno's you know, arrow, I think, is more interesting. Definitely, I I, <laughs> I would concur with that. And I also was going to make like a full disclosure that huh. you know he'd already written tennis court oath. Yes. Right. Great, great book. Uh, he hadn't yet written three poems. Yeah. Great, great book. Uh, and flowchart, great, great book. You know, this this poem, I reread and I listened to Ashbery reading it simultaneously oh. so that I could, um, you know, get a little extra in on it. And my opinion hasn't really changed. There's things to say about it, definitely, but I'm not crazy about it in terms of sort of what's possible within... Ashbury's dynamic, his his idiosyncratic dimensional insertions, relationship with language, uh, possibilities of his experiment are not are not to me particularly salient or abiding in this poem, and, and as I recall in the book in general. Yeah, I mean, I probably have a more favorable um, opinion of it, but. Um... I feel similar about it uh, in the larger Ashbury corpus. Um, I, I, and I know that my friend, our mutual friend, Charles North, feels very strongly about this as well. Charles North feels that Ashbury's, um, Ashbury's greatest work was um, three poems. I, mm -hmm. I like a long poem from the 1980s called A Wave. Great work. Yeah, the, the skaters. Yeah. Great um, work. Great work. Great and, book of uh, rivers and mountains. Great book. I know mm. Asbury himself felt somewhat ambivalent about um, self-portrait in the convex mirror. I think he was he was happy that it uh, put his name on the literary map because he, he cared about that sort of stuff. But as an older man, I got to know him. Know him. I don't know. I just remember him not being dismissive, but not really being very interested in talking about that particular poem. I mean, yeah, I remember I think, Walt Whitman wrote, uh, my, Oh, Captain, My Captain, is that? And oh, in Captain, the, My in Captain. The, and yeah. uh, in the post-war period, that was the one poem that got anthologized and little kids learned it. And uh, and he hated the poem. You know, he was, <laughs> it was just like, I wish I hadn't read written that. Like uh, Kenneth Coates, Variations on William Carlos Williams. Um, everyone, oh, yeah. Everyone wanted to anthologize that one. It was the one-hit wonder. So he ended up, if people wanted to publish it, he charged a lot of money. <laughs> oh, yeah? It is a great poem. I have no problem with that poem. I'm not, know, I never, and I like Oh, Captain, My Captain. I think it's a good I, poem. It's a, it's a sing-along. Yeah, it's a good poem. Yeah, I would say. I remember I, I never met Kenneth Koch, but I 
I, did, I was at an event at the Frick and saw Kenneth Koch, and I was struck by him. I, I thought he was a bluff and, and handsome man, and I, he was tall and had this beautiful silver hair. And I saw him, you know, I, I'm not even sure that we made eye contact, but he had this lovely way of turning away and then wandering off into the gallery by himself. Mm. There was really mm. um, much more than Robert Bly's The Man in the Black Coat Turns. <laughs> Whoa. Very poetic to walk off by yourself in a gallery in the midst of a party. That's the sign of a true poet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can we talk about a few nodes from this poem that um, we liked or that we felt radiated some energy? I think. Yeah, I mean, I made a whole list of things I liked. Uh, there's great lines nice. in it. I, the one thing I, I don't have, I, I did underline some stuff and could say some stuff. I would just say one thing, yeah. and that is that as it happens, the 10th line begins with sequestered. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of sequestering in the poem, right? The, the soul is sequestered in the, uh, in, the, in the body or in one's field of consciousness. The artist is sequestered in this little room as a result of plague and as a result of the sack of rome um the the portrait of the artist is sequestered in the uh the circle of the mirror and the painting itself there there are, there are a lot a lot of retirements in enclosed spaces wouldn't you say <laughs> i think you got it shucks you hit it andrew well i think he's at some point he uses consent Concentric is a verb. Concentricize, concentratize, concentricize, or something. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. I want to say something about the actual portrait. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, because you know that the poem is based on. Because you know, I don't think. I mean, people should look it up if they're actually listening to this podcast. Uh, you know, it's very easy to find on the internet, and it is a super weird painting it's the first painting ever painted in a mirror according to the poem itself i don't know if that's true and sorry yeah yeah and it's a it's a convex mirror so it distorts it distorts the objects that are close to it and doesn't much affect slightly curves i think the space around the artist's head but the actual face of the artist looks kind of normal but his hand is lying on the table in front of the mirror, and his hand is huge and grotesque. Uh, it, it's really a, you know, almost a kind of surrealist uh, effect. I mean, that's all I could see in the little, you know, reproduction on the internet. And uh, I remember, I remember in Gulliver's Travels, mm. at some point, Gulliver is transformed into or he he's with uh, he's with the yahoos he's with the big people everybody's oh. tiny everybody else is big and at some point he he's with a woman and he's with a, a breast yeah and he describes the the nipple and and this and it it's this phenomena a little bit similar to the hand in self-portrait <laughs> in a convex mirror yeah apparently uh swift had some kind of horror of the human body particularly i think of women 
And also, yeah, I think this woman is breastfeeding a baby and there's hair coming. I mean, giant hair, of course, giant hairs coming out of the breast. It's it's really uh, the nipple is horrific. Uh, I I read it fairly recently, that uh, that book. Great book. Mm, Great book. Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. I can't remember the name of those big people. Rob Dignagians, maybe? Anyway, I interrupted, Sparrow. You were saying about the portrait itself. Uh, Well, anyway, that's, yeah, I just wanted to talk about the, yeah. So do you want to go, Andrew? Were you saying, did you want to say something else? Not really. There was just, there was a, I have a favorite moment from the poem. Okay, yeah. um, That I was just going to read uh, the uh, language um, of, and here it is. Um, This is the first line, we have surprised him. At work, but no, he has surprised us as he oh, yeah. um, describing the experience of first seeing the painting. Um, I can't be more specific than that. Do you want a line number, or should I just read the quotation? Yeah, um, we have surprised him at work, but no, he has surprised us as he works. The picture is almost finished. The surprise almost over. As hmm. one looks out. Startled by a snowfall, which even now is ending in specks and sparkles of snow. It happened while you were inside asleep, but there is no reason why you should have been awake for it, except that the day is ending and it will be hard for you to get sleep tonight, at least until late. I, I just love that the, the, the simple description of um, looking out the window and realizing that it has been snowing unbeknownst to you as an instance of wakefulness, the sort of wakefulness that you, somebody might experience looking at a, a painting or listening to some beautiful sonata or a blues solo, just this, this sharpening of, of wonder. And I appreciate the lyrical beauty of the language in this passage and in other passages. Yeah, it's also a little bit of a glimpse into the practicalities of the artistic practice in which one perhaps in writing or painting enters into sometimes a quiet sometimes a a kind of fiery reverie Mm. and then time passes time passes away time kind of disappears and then you come back to what is yourself, what is self, come back to what is not yourself, it's hard to say, Mm. and it's, you look out the window and it's snowing. You know, I think, that was so beautifully put, Sam, and I I think it's absolutely present in this um, quotation, and I think this quotation explains what I like most about the later poem, A Wave. And, and that's that when Ashbery is at his most effective, he's offering, I think, a cartography, a map of the inner life. Huh. A, a map of what an extended inner odyssey over, um, say, 15, 20, 25 minutes, an hour, what that looks like, what that feels like emotionally. and. Mm. Yeah, I, I um, think that's his greatest contribution to to poetics and to um, intellectual history. I just, um, yeah, I, I don't. Oh, it's a it's a contribution. I just that that resonates with me. 
Yeah, and this poem, I think, you know, one of the things that makes it a very successful poem is this extended sense of uh, contemplation, like pushing, just as a performance of a person interiorizing a painting. And I I remembered when uh, when I moved back to New York City in 1978, I was online in a supermarket, I opened New York Magazine, and there was an art review by John Ashbery. He was an art critic for New York Magazine for a number of years. So he kind of, I think, leveraged this poem, and which looks very skillfully at a painting, into a kind of a career. They've been published. His art reviews, I think, were lately uh, collected and published. Yeah, in a, in a work of reported sightings. Yes. The collected art writings of John Ashbery, which came out a while ago now, it came out maybe in 2000 or 2001, around around the millennium. But it's a it's a he was a, a wonderful art writer. His art reviews are great. They're they're playful and insightful and you know attentive to language, obviously. So Sparrow, what uh, what did you glean? Well, I'll just read uh, my favorite lines. But it is life englobed, englobed, E-N-G-L-O-B-E-D. Um, and tomorrow is easy, but today is uncharted. I like things that are kind of aphoristic. I like that. Maybe this is my favorite line. Perhaps an angel looks like everything we have forgotten. Uh, like and then it. I got kind of fascinated by this line. New York is a logarithm of other cities which really seems true, but I couldn't remember what a logarithm was. You know, at one time I went to the Bronx High School of Science and I was a biology major at, uh, at Cornell until I flunked out. So I did, you know, study higher mathematics, but I cannot really remember what is a logarithm. It's something, I mean, according to Wikipedia, it's something that like two numbers have to be multiplied by. It's something like uh, a thousand is a logarithm is is the number three it's a logarithm of three of base 10 because it's 10 times 10 times 10. but anyway it does seem right that new york is somehow a logarithm of other cities like some number it's a city that is others that if multiplied would make every other city or something like that huh. uh here's some cool. other lines i is like it, oh i was can i can i comment or oh yeah you, sure uh, yeah it's interesting logarithm we we did a podcast on algorithm and oh yes yeah. yeah we learned that the algorithm the word is derived from this iranian mathematician logo logarithm it sounds a little bit like logos and plugos plus rhythm so it sounds a little dare i say poetic and and it's an anagram for algorithm it has the same letters as the word algorithm it's L-O-G-A as opposed to A-L-G-O. <laughs> cool. Right on. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And um, here's more lines I like. It is inertia that once acknowledged saps all activity, secret or public. There is something, a quality of like giving a speech of this poem. Like it reminded me a little bit of like some Roman senator giving a speech. Oh, and this is really a good line. But what is this universe the porch of? But what is this universe the porch of? In other words, 
this universe is the porch of something else, but what? (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, It kind of reminds me, now now that we've done, I think, a dozen podcasts, we now have this kind of nostalgia a little bit. Or maybe I do, because I edit them. Oh, right. It reminds me a bit of uh, Rilke being on the porch in the Duino Castle, you know, Uh nestled in that tree. Confronting the universe and uh, hearing the uh, angel. And then here's, I have two more lines that I liked. His life obstructing task. His life obstructing task. You know, which is really a great, uh, what's the word, image of what is an artist. Someone who has a life obstructing task. A task uh, that is uh, intended to obstruct life to obstruct your life it's you're, you're trying to live your life and this artist is putting something in front of you that that gets in the way and kind of uh, that you can't see around that get that uh, that uh, clutters up your your field of vision and then also i think for me in this period of the uh, great pause you know, the life uh, you know complete isolation mm-hmm. the, um I'm looking for thing. I'm looking for life obstructing uh, tasks. I'm looking for life obstructing obstructing devices. Like my wife and I are, you know. Normally, I don't really watch these dopey TV shows that you can get addicted to on Netflix. But now I want them. You know, I want my life to be obstructed. I want something like art, or probably something closer to entertainment, to sort of. Fill up my brain and take me away from uh, the eternal uh, uh, cessation of life here. And then here's yeah, my it's, a, it's a um, it's interesting the life obstructing task. It reminds me a little bit of the Ancient Mariner, the rhyme huh. of the Ancient Mariner, um, who I guess is is accosting. This cat who's gone, is he the actual groom or is he gone to... Uh, I think he's a wedding guest. Yeah, he's a wedding guest. And, you know, he wants to get back to the keg or I guess <laughs> back. And um, this guy like collars him and has to um, transmit this obstruction. Yeah, this old, scary, uh, long-haired, wild-looking guy who looks a lot like me. The Ancient Mariner. Yeah. Uh, is, is life obstructing the poor wedding guest? Oh, yeah. And but anyway. That also, the, the condition of that ship of which the Ancient Mariner sings his chanty, his song, is also a quarantine state. They're kind yes. of stuck on this in this ship and unable to um, get home. Yeah. Which maybe. is kind of weirdly. Um, convex as opposed to concave or concave rather than convex. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and it's a reversal from our state. We're, we're each on our rafts drifting. Water, water everywhere. And oh, the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere. And not a and drop, not a to, drop drink. to drink. Yeah, maybe that's the next uh, extended poem we should do as a sort of uh, convex lens to look at our uh, quarantine. Oh, anyway, so here's my last line I like. 
there is room for one bullet in the chamber. I mean, there's there's beautiful little lines in this poem. I mean, there's, you know, I'm not whatever. I mean, it's, it's pathetic in a way for a poet of my talents to attack this poem. But what can I do? <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, Sam had mentioned those, mom those moments when um, the poet is called back to the body, back to the self, right, Sam? Uh, yeah, you know, back to the from yeah. these called back yeah. to uh, you know the dirty the the uh, bundle of coincidences that sits down to breakfast. What is that line from? Um, I believe that it could, it might as well have been Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I believe that that was none other than William Butler Yeats. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. There's interestingly, there's a moment early on in Self-Portrait Convex Mirror that um, explores the trajectory of the opposite of um, moving from the real into the um, into the uh, into the um, unreal or from the external into the internal. I'm going to read it. Oh, great. So he's been in the present and now he's going to drift off into the internal world, into um, the inner life. The balloon pops. The attention turns dully away. Wait, 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 wait. Stop for a sec. Yeah. Could you go back? Just like the balloon pops. There was a, it just got fried. So you just need to reread it. The balloon popped when you said it. Yeah. The techno. Maybe I should have, we should leave it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll decide later. Well, the poem is all about ruptures in space time. So what? Mm. Experience one in, in um, the um, Skype format. Right? I was trying to make excuses for how up our sound quality is. Yeah, the we may have the the what's the, we may win the prize for the worst uh, sound of any podcast. The sound is the fourth member of the of the podcast. <laughs> the distortion. <laughs> yeah. So here's the quotation: "The balloon pops, the attention turns dully away." Clouds in the puddle stir up into sawtoothed fragments. I think of the friends who came to see me, of what yesterday was like, a peculiar slant of memory that intrudes on the dreaming model and the silence of the studio as he considers lifting the pencil to the self-portrait. How many people came and stayed a certain time, uttered light or dark speech that became part of you, like light behind wind-blown fog and sand, filtered and influenced by it until no part remains that is surely you. That quotation is a little closer to John Ashbery at his, um, you know, crest, I would say. And what, other than your um, very astute but general remarks, how would you define that crest in terms of the aesthetic or existential project in those poems that you feel really are Ashbury at his peak. Yeah, I'm unable to um, generate like a, <laughs> a thesis. Yeah, <laughs> I feel a little like Zohar, you know, like I'm going to spit something out. But I, I actually, I, I'm not sure I can. I think in, again, you know, the sort of nostalgia for old past podcasts, I did at some point talk about that moment at which the he builds up a tapestry. He builds up a, a kind of plausible and sonically 
pleasing and associatively compelling structure. And then in very short order, and it's a little bit like Fellini. I don't know if you've ever seen Fellini's uh, Intervista, um, his last film. He, you know, clicks his fingers and makes it disappear and you're left with the void. You're hanging in space uh-huh. with nothing to hold on to. That's mm. the, that's Ashbery's most, mm. for me, most powerful trope. Albeit, I really dug what you said about the topography of the inner life and his um you know his continuation of the work that arguably you could say joyce started huh. off the century with i agree uh, with your agreement to what i said <laughs> <laughs> well i would hope unless you changed your mind in the last three minutes i just want to say that uh, i was john ashbury's student as i think i've mentioned probably every other podcast. I'm proud of that fact. Um, he was very kind to me. I, I mm. As a person, I, I, I found him to be uh, very generous, and he, he did some nice things for me, and I, I'll never forget those things. That I thought he was quirky and brilliant, but benevolent. You know, um, someone who didn't seem to have a lot of visible pretensions. And mm-hmm. m- maybe it's uh, when I met him in his life cycle, when, when I met him, he was already in his early 70s. Mm. I don't know what he was like when he was younger, but um, I, I, I just think he was a wonderfully good man. I thought, I thought he was a good man, you know, just in his, the, the quality of his interactions and with other people. And... I mean, the sense I got from him, I had about two conversations with him that lasted maybe a total of a minute and a quarter, and... Uh, maybe less. And I got the sense of him as kind of childlike guy who kind of lived in the present. I mean, that was how he struck me. And witty. Yeah. But but his wittiness was, his wit came kind of from this like uh, absolute uh, absorption in what was happening in front of him. He was witty. I once asked him if he liked the poetry of Robert Kelly. Ah. Um, they were the two poets teaching at Bard when I was an undergraduate there. And his, this was before I really knew anything about Ashbury's wit. And his response, I'll never forget. He said, well, uh, if, I didn't, if I didn't like his work, I would probably lie and say that I did. <laughs> if you want to know the truth, I really like his work. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> That's great, man. That's like, um, you know, uh, all Cretans lie. You know, I am. A yeah, Cretan yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. <laughs> the um, so the uh, yeah, I met Ashbury a, a number of times in different circumstances. He came to a reading that I gave with a guy named Chris Straffolino. And, uh, and Ashbury liked Chris's work. He didn't come because I was reading. He came for Chris at the Mid-Hudson Gallery. It was way off um, on the Hudson River in New York. And uh, afterwards, we went out for drinks, went out to a bar. And Ashbury was there. My ex-wife, Florence Chex-Danjou de Massag, was there. <laughs> and, 
you know, we he had one of his assistants. I, I don't recall his name. I think it was Mark or Mike or something like that. A young cat, good looking, earnest, <laughs> quiet. And I think he had our poetic, you know, ambitions or something like that. But I didn't talk to him too much. But John was there and charming, affable and stuff like that. And um, I guess that I'd read well or something had happened where things sort of went in my direction. And my wife is French. And John Ashbury, of course, had a, um, you know, large French connection. And he, he said to her sort of under his breath, and John Ashbury, after he'd had a few drinks, could be a little bit nasty. And he <laughs> he used some French, uh, like, argot expression that conveyed the sense of, oh, the celebrity of the moment. Like, kind of, I was just a passing bright <laughs> cloud that, you know, momentarily would disperse and... Yeah. But I would I would concur with what both of you had said. He was incredible. He was a super great guy to meet and always fun and uh, chatty and charming and loquacious and affable and very present, I felt, for sure. I uh, brought him to my first year at Trinity School. I brought him in to teach a class of freshmen. Huh. And he uh, he loved that, um, I think. Uh, but the kids didn't know what sort of honor it was. You know, they, uh-huh. they didn't realize that this was one of the uh, the greats. Do you think that um, he will be read? And you know, do you think uh, John Ashbery's poems will sometime? I don't even think in those terms anymore. But I just felt compelled to ask. I I think that John Ashbery will be read. I think that he'll be read on the intergalactic freighter. You know, the crew <laughs> crew in the intergalactic freighter will have John Ashbery, you know, at poems on their whatever means of conveying language. I, I believe so. Yeah, he he touched a kind of cosmic nerve. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know, but you mean in 100 years? Well, I guess. Yeah, sure. I would guess. But I... I went to the at Bard. My daughter was at Bard when uh, Ashbery had his 80th birthday, and they had a sort of tribute to him that I went to. And I talked. That's when I took one of the times I talked. You know, that was like uh, maybe 25 seconds out of my uh, uh, one minute and uh, 15 seconds conversation with him in my life. And uh, yeah, he was sitting behind me watching. Um, this memorial, you know, memorial, this tribute to himself. And I said, uh, how does it feel? And he said something like, it feels weird. But I'm not sure. I think that's what he said. Uh, oh, yeah. And at that event, you know, just seeing a bunch of his poems, very cleverly chosen, read out loud, I thought, wow, he is a great poet, like super great, as great as Tennyson. I mean, I'm not sure if I... Uh, you know, still think that, but I mean, that was my experience of that day. So I have uh, a few lines that I underline. Could I, could I run through them? I wish you would. Yeah. 
All right, the first, okay, the first line that I underline is the secret is too plain. <laughs> and then that everything is surface. The surface is what's there and nothing can exist except what's there. And then a few lines down, I circled this word, which is weather, um, you know, like the climate phenomena. And then in the next line, time, and he points out uh, as a gauge of the weather, which in French is le temps, the word for time. And so then, oh, so weather and time are somehow linked. And they are, you know, they're right next to each other. And so that becomes interesting because there's all sorts of weather phenomena in the poem. And mm. weather, is it, is it, and I hadn't actually clocked on this, you know, Ashbury, one of his signal strengths is skill in describing weather. It's yeah. one of his tropes, you know, he's always, um, he evokes weather phenomena, um, you know, through his poetry. And so it's interesting to see that he linked weather with time um, and then to observe the way in which uh, weather operates through this poem, as well as, you know, as it happens, it's the last word in the poem, whispers out of time. Uh -huh. Um, which I thought was interesting. And then the other um, sort of like broad kind of satellite observation of this poem is his use of the word uh, mirror, uh, not just in the title, but it's in, in its relation to the Latin, as you had pointed out, Andrew, in our last podcast, uh, the speculum. And so, you know, there's... This, those are two instances in which he grounds a key word, mirror, with speculation. The poem is full of speculation. Mm. And then also time, that those two things seem like lie, alive uh, whispers through the poem. The problem I'm having is that even though I remember the speculum reference, uh, I'm not, I didn't underline it. Curiously, uh. or you know, I had this kind of in, ineffective pen that I was using, and so I think <laughs> it just didn't. Um, it's very um, hard to find anything in that poem. I've noticed. Well, he's very determined in I terms of wanting to ground this idea of the mirror and its uh, association yeah. with speculum, which I believe is also isn't a speculum an instrument that's used by gynecologists I think for so. holding on, for opening the vaginal, the labian walls. All right. Or for looking inside, maybe. Yeah. I would think. Sam, the, the image is right, right after one of the lines you read. The secret is too plain. The pity oh. makes hot tears spurt. That the soul is not a soul, has no secret, is small, and it fits its hollow perfectly. It's room, our moment of attention. That is the tune, but there are no words. The words are only speculation from the Latin speculum mirror. They seek and cannot find the meaning of the music. Huh, that's so that, interesting. Yeah, and it's also 
just a, a little a little bit the secret Ashbury's a little bit of his secret you know his magic dust I think well and it also describes his method that more than any other poet he somehow creates this sensation that the words in his poems are kind of arbitrary and that there's something beneath the poem or some kind of music of the poem that's the essential yeah. matter that the, that the words themselves uh, uh, aren't so important. Yeah, really, really well put that you have this emotional resonance, this feeling. But you, you, know, you can't quite work it out logically in terms of how the words actually create that it's, um, or what the poem means. Yeah, it evades meaning. And even this poem, which is full of meaning, ultimately slips away from meaning. And this is my theory about that. As, as a reflective surface, I think he, you know, parts of the poem are quite worked out and logical, and other mm. parts really resist intelligibility. And I think the surface becomes distorted in places in the same way that a convex mirror does. Yeah. I was trying to find that great line. He's got a line, I, I just paraphrased it, where he says something like, a hand which is such an unlikely part of a body. And and because the the hand in that painting, as I was saying, you know, it's like looms up, takes like, you know, a quarter of the painting, this big weird looking, just, in, um, you know, inert hand, uh, you know, it, it somehow conveys in the painting this idea that isn't it really weird that we have hands? You know, you wouldn't think that a body would have hands. And in fact, in a sense, humans are the only body that has a hand, the only animal that has hands. Well, that hand is also reaching out. And it's the hand through which Francesco connects with John is through the hand. Um, I guess if one hand writes, but also the hand as you picked up Andrew again in you know nostalgia for podcasts past in terms of the cave in terms of again in France the plasticine caves that you visited I guess Lascaux yeah the impression of the hand on the wall oh yeah mm. that that first mark that that primal imprint of the artistic impulse it's a it's a form of poetics it's um really resonates you know what i'm realizing this just knocked my socks off is that the very end of this poem the very ending prior to the um the language that you read sam of remembrance whispers out of time is tailor it fits the our moment like a glove it's tailor made mm. for the present moment check this out one feels too confined, <laughs> sifting the April sunlight for clues in the mere stillness of the ease of its parameter. The hand holds no chalk, and each part of the whole falls off and cannot know it knew, except here and there, in cold pockets of remembrance, whispers out of time. I mean, that, that, that describes the weather today, the beautiful sun, the fact mm. that it's April, the condition of confinement, the unknowability of what's happening, the fact mm. that the hand 
holds no chalk. Chalk here, I think, is a symbol of um, erudition, of edification, the chalkboard in the classroom. You know, there is no lesson here, a final interpretation, and each part of the whole falls off and cannot know it new except here and there. Mm. And also, you and also are, you're a teacher, Andrew, and you're normally you're in a classroom with chalk, and now you're teaching over Zoom where the hand holds no chalk. Mm. But the chalk also is more than, I think, perhaps erudition, a symbol for erasure. Mm. Um, Mm. Yeah. Also, it's white. It snowed this morning. It yeah, was here it's squalls snow. of snow. <laughs> Are you in, serious? It's snowed in the Catskills? Yeah. Yeah, on the 22nd of April. Yeah. It's Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. It's that been was a nice um, day. It's nice weather, I felt. Mm. I took Jory Graham's workshop at uh, when I was at Harvard Divinity School. And the poet, Jory Graham, who was friends with Ashbery, she critiqued, she said the thing she didn't like about his work was that it, it, it felt removed from the earth, that it lacked a tangibility and earthiness, that, that, that descriptions of nature, even weather, Sam, from her perspective, were like props or pastels of the real thing. I guess mental, in some ways, mental traces, mental pastels. It's so um, inward. It's so internal. You know, but... Why do I bring... Yeah, you mentioned Earth Day. No. I don't agree with that. I mean, Sparrow would know more about this than I would. (laughs) But you know, what is real? Sure. I think at the back of this poem, and at the back of a lot of John Ashbery's work, practically speaking, is that quote from Wallace Stevens, which is, the night wind blows over the dreaming man, bent over words, life's voluble utterances. Beautiful. You can... Really, hear the echoes of Wallace Stevens in the um, poems that you got, the, the language um, fragments that you guys read aloud. That aphoristic quality. Oh, interesting. These sharp philosophical um, images that have a poetic quality. I had a few notes from from our last session. One is, you know, we'd left off with Sparrow talking about robbing a bank. You know, you know, it's a good time to rob a bank. You know, um, because everyone's and, wearing a mask. Yeah, everybody's wearing a mask, and I and I went out today, and I, I made I had a few errands and saw people in their masks, and so everybody's kind of getting used to wearing a mask, which I think inherently is interesting. We all, you know, metaphorically wear a mask, but I think more than that, practically speaking, everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody's kind of a criminal, <laughs> and we're kind of getting in touch with our law-breaking selves. Yeah. And we're also erasing our identities. I mean, that's why bank robbers wear masks. They don't want to be identified. <laughs> they don't so want everybody to be... is everybody's kind of half uh, uh, anonymous now. Yeah. They sort don't of want pseudonymous. To be, yeah, they don't want to be portrayed. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and then I had two other fleeting observations that I thought might be worth mentioning. One is that the is the speed of change with which people have 
adopted this new lifestyle. There's been some resistance to it, but overall, I think that uh, four-fifths of the American population, if there is such a thing, um, you know, have kind of said, yeah, we should be doing this. This is the right thing to do. Let's not kill people. Um, so I think that that's, for me, very encouraging that humanity is capable of such swift change, that we remain mutable, that we remain able to, as Americans and also as human beings, to to quickly alter our behavior, to seize the main chance, to address realities of the ground, or, you know, as Joy Graham would say, you know, the earth, you know, what, what is real, and to modify one's behavior in accordance with that. And it, it kind of, for me, leading on, gives me confidence that people may have found, may, may be capable of leaving the system, which is letting everybody down right now. The system right now in the United States is letting us down. Um, we're a little bit, you know, states are on their own, people are on their own, large segments of the American population are being um, shunted aside, uh, show up at hospitals if you're black and, you know, have behavioral issues. You're not let into the hospital, even though you're running a high fever and have pre-existing hmm. conditions and stuff, all sorts of stories of people being turned away. So the whole system's kind of a disappointment. And, you know, so I continue to feel the central issue of our time has to do with climate change and that we will be able to alter our behavior to save the earth, which I, ha which I hadn't had high confidence. I hadn't really had much confidence in that but we might be able to do it. That was a very inspiring reflection, Sam. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I thought so, too. Really, yeah. really beautiful. And, and so um, beautifully worded, thoughtful, and, and um, expressive of so much. It made me think about my own uh, commitment to the revolution when I was maybe 60 and I became a believer that there should be some sort of armed revolution to take over America, kill all the rich people, and uh, start a new society based on some sort of socialist uh, communitarian sharing. And I never really stopped believing in the revolution, but over time I've come to redefine it constantly and to less and less be convinced that picking up guns, particularly at the moment where there's so many right-wing people that have an amazing number of guns. It just seems like what would be the revolution that would really change things? And maybe this is it. Maybe this quarantine is the revolution. It's come and we don't recognize it because it wears the mundane clothing of a mask and uh, uh, sitting at home watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> Can I read this one? I wrote this paragraph this morning. Can I read it? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Now is a good time to become temporarily religious. Whether or not God is imaginary, 
the divine being can be extremely consoling when you are isolated and bereft of pleasure. Try praying or meditating on God's name or singing holy words. Such practices seem to help people during the Black Plague. Well, I, you wrote that this morning? Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Is that a poem? No, it's a little piece of prose. Can is you, this part of your assignments? This is, you know, I mean, it's going to be on one of my many. I'm, I have various assignments to write about the uh, quarantine. One for health pamphlets. It might become a health pamphlet. It might be published in the Sun magazine. It'll probably end up on the cutting room floor everywhere, except in this podcast. Maybe even in this podcast. It's up to Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it may go nowhere fast, but, uh, you know, I wrote it, whatever. Can I ask you a question, if I may ask? What is the name of God? I've always often uh, reflected on what is the what name? What should of I God? call the, yeah, this. You're asking me? I mean, I'd say my favorite name of God is Allah. I just think it's a very pretty word. Yeah. And I'm a big Muslim, a very pro-Muslim. I, li I just like that Muslim re Islamic religion a lot. And uh, second choice would be Krishna. Because I, I find, uh, I, I also like singing Hare Krishna. So, um, you know, those are two options. You know, the Jewish name for God, uh, which the Jehovah's Witnesses mispronounce is uh you know not supposed to be spoken so i would refrain from chanting it you know you mean, personally but you know you can do what you want i'm, I'm not you your... mean you mean the tetragametron yeah many thanks for joining us on this edition of baffling combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous and please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.